Hi, you've clicked on the Reach Australia podcast. Uh, my name's Pete Hughes. I want to welcome you. At Reach Australia, we want to see thousands of healthy, evangelistic and multiplying churches all over our country. Recently, we had our national conference, and this is the third of the talks from Rory Shiner as he continues to take us through Colossians. Enjoy. Uh, just as we, uh, we settle in for the last talk, let me just uh, share a little resource uh, with you that we've got coming. Uh, we have a course we run in uh, that was developed by Paul Young, who you saw up here uh, last night, called Taste and See. You, wait, you eat your way through the Bible over uh, four weeks. It's a dinner party-based explanation of the Christian faith to non-Christians, and uh, we wanted to make that available to everyone, so we're getting that uh, up. Gus is helping us get a website for that, and if you want to give an expression of interest, we'd love to share that with you, uh, if you think that would be helpful in your context. Uh, it's been great to be with you guys this week and to dig into these things. Let's uh, ask God for his help as we uh, hit the home, the home straight. Uh, Father God, we uh, pray that you would uh, bless our understanding, that you would fortify us with courage, uh, that you would make us determined to be faithful to you and to see fruit in ministry. And we pray it for Christ's glory. Amen. Well, on Tuesday, the 18th of October in 1966, there was a gathering in London of the National Assembly of Evangelicals. Uh, that organisation, National, uh, the National Assembly of Evangelicals, was born in the mid-century in the context of the ecumenical church movement. Uh, if you uh, don't remember or don't know this stuff, there was a huge amount of time and energy that went in after the war, so post-World War, right up to the kind of 1970s, huge amounts of energy given over to the idea, the, the dream, the thought, the, the vision of the churches coming together. Of, of putting uh, aside our denominational uh, differences and uniting together into one organisational church. Uh, in Australia, you see the fruit of that in things like the uh, Uniting Church in 1977, uh, the ecumenical uh, movements that were here. In Britain, uh, the British Council of Churches, for example, resolved in 1964 that the uh, church in Britain should be organisationally united by Easter Sunday in 1980. That, that was the plan. That, that by 1980 on Easter Sunday, there would be no more Catholic, Protestant, Baptist, uh, Anglican, uh, whatever. There was going to be one territorial church, one church of uh, Christ in Britain. That was the plan. And that, that, that was considered like ambitious but doable, the, the, the vision that they had. So that's the context of the 1960s. And in this meeting, the evangelicals came together, this organisation came together to consider their options and their future, uh, to put their mind and their prayers to the task of how should evangelicals in this moment after the you know, post-war and in the uh, ecumenical movement, how should we think about our unity, uh, about the nature of the unity of the church and the churches? And on this day, the, uh, the leadership of the National Assembly of Evangelicals invited Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh uh, preacher, to address the assembly. And Lloyd-Jones got up and gave an address that uh, by all reports was electric. Uh, what he did was called for evangelicals to match their spiritual unity with a visible unity, 
His argument was that here we are, evangelicals, scattered across the denominations, uh, sometimes as majorities, often as beleaguered minorities in the historic denominations. And to him, it was a great grief that evangelicals were divided, were apart. Uh, He accused evangelicals of the sin of schism because they remained visibly separate from each other and visibly associated with denominations that often weren't faithful to the apostolic gospel. Uh, It was a famous uh, moment because uh, John Stott was chairing the meeting. And John Stott got up. John Stott was a lot younger than Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think John Stott was about 45. Martin Lloyd-Jones was 60 uh, in his mid to late 60s, heading for retirement. So you had this unusual sort of uh, disparity there. And, And John Stott, the relatively young our leader got up and said, oh, we thank the good doctor for his address, but he has neither history nor scripture to support him. <laughs> and and there's, a, there's a riff in uh, British evangelicalism that's largely dissipated, but is still there to this day that comes out of that moment. Uh, Stott, uh, as he said uh, later, was uh, terrified to do it, but felt compelled to do it because he feared a mass exodus of evangelicals from the Church of England. And and two paths were set up at that moment. And the thing I want to think with you about this morning, uh, is is that right? Who was right? What is, put it this way, what is the obligation we have between churches. Not, not within churches, but within churches. What's the proper way to think about that relationship? Is it a grief to God and is it an impediment to our mission that we walk separately in terms of organisations and structures and denominations and traditions? Is that, is that something that we should work toward? Is that something that harms us as we find ourselves separate? Should we seek institutional unity? Is the part of the end game of God that we all end up on the same org chart? That, that we can all see ourselves in the same structure, that we all uh, possess the same institutional frame? Is that what we're looking for? Or should we look for a, a kind of uh, not institutional unity, but a visible unity? Should it be obvious to each other and to the world that we stand together, that we come together in our communities for prayer and uh, praise and so on? Is that something to put time and energy into? Is that one of the implications of what we've been learning together uh, about the unity that God is bringing to all things, beginning with the church? I want to think about that as we finish, and I want to ask, uh, answer two questions as we draw our time together. The first one is what should happen between the churches? Uh, what, what is the proper way to think about those relationships, given what we've learned from the book of Colossians? And then secondly, uh, what should happen in our churches? Between the churches, in our churches, and we're going to land that way. Uh, so I want to bring you back to uh, Colossians. Remember what we've learned, Colossians, where we're seeing that God uh, was always together with the Son, that the, the most basic reality is togetherness, is the relationship between the Father and the Son. Uh, God creates all things, all things are made in, by, through, and with the Son. Uh, all things, the creation has a genuine independence, it's not God. 
and yet creation uh, is possessed by God, is, is made in, by, through and for the Son. And we saw that God is at work bringing all things together by bringing the church together, Jew and Gentile, sins forgiven, united uh, in Christ. And we see that in the book of Colossians, the word church is used in two overlapping ways. Uh, firstly, this, the church refers to what we call the empirical church, uh, the church you could take a photograph of, the church in Laodicea or the church that meets at Nymphus House. If you know the time and the place, you can be there and see it. And then we saw this other use of the word church referring to the, the body of Christ. And we said that, that, it, that what seems to be going on there is that it's envisaging not just the sum total of all Christians everywhere, but us as we are now presently gathered around Christ in the heavenly realm. So, so both uses are a reference to assembly, one here as we gather on earth and one uh, as we are gathered spiritually to Christ in heaven. And th- therefore we said that the relationship between the churches is not like a Lego set, where there's different traditions and different denominations and different sets and we are, we are apart and if we came together, then we would have a unity. But rather, a kind of more complicated but in a more kind of extraordinary vision is that we all are members of the church now that's gathered around Christ and each of us expresses the body of Christ fully when we gather together in our churches. So less like a Lego set and more like the way droplets on a leaf reflect the morning sun. So when you go home from here, if you go to a, you're back to your church, you will be not part of but in the body of Christ. That community will be a community which God has supplied your needs abundantly, where the body of Christ is gathered and expressed. Now, if that's true, that we all participate in the body of Christ, and in a sense we carry our church membership with us. So, you know, if I, if I retired in Perth and moved to, uh, to the Central Coast, can't think why that would need to happen, but if I, you know, if I did and I got on the plane and went from our church to this church, I came to EV, uh, my membership comes with me because I'm a member of the of the body of Christ gathered around Christ in the heavenly realm. So when I rock up from, when I go from that church to this church, I, I cash in my membership ticket. I'm not against membership courses where you run one, it's, you know, that's really important. But so spiritually, if, if, I'm, if I'm here, I'm instantly a member of this church because I'm expressing the fact that I'm a member of, of the church that's gathered around Christ. Now, one of the implications of this is that the churches don't need each other, sounds like a heretical statement, the churches don't need each other to be validly constituted as churches. So so one of the implications of the things we've been seeing in Colossians is that my church is not an inadequate church, but a complete expression of church, whether it's in a lounge room under cover of secrecy in Jordan in a large auditorium on the, on the central coast, in the middle of London. Uh, none of those things are inadequate. They are fully expressions. When I go to that, I am part of the body of Christ. It is a full and complete expression of church. We don't need each other. Our, 
our relationship is not one where we need each other to validate one another. We are each complete in the body of Christ. We, ex- we exist in and express the body of Christ where we are. So do we not need each other at all? No way. We, we desperately need each other. I, I think the vision of the New Testament is not organisational unity. It's not that we need to be on the same org chart. I don't think that's the kind of unity that God is going for. I don't think it's even necessarily uh, you know, visible unity. It, there, there are times when it is, is terrific for the Christians in a certain area to gather together, but I don't think that's the unity that we need to spend all our time and energy on. And in the book of Colossians, I think we see right off the bat three ways that the churches relate one to another. I want to show them to you now. Uh, Number one, the churches share in the apostolic ministry of Paul. What, What do the churches share in common? Number one, they share Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's how the book begins. Paul, remember, had never met the Colossians. This is not a church that he planted. This is not a church that he had uh, that kind of association with. He didn't plant them. He didn't own them or possess them. They weren't on his org chart. And yet he teaches them and he exercises apostolic authority over them. Or in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read to the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. One of those verses that's just kind of smuggled there at the back of the book. But do you notice it's a command, not a suggestion. Paul, Paul is saying, think about this. Paul is saying, I wrote a letter to you and this other letter that I wrote to them and the nature of reading other people's mail is that you're going to miss some stuff because there'll be some references to people you don't know and circumstances and so on. Nevertheless, get a copy of their letter and read it and do a swap because, because you need to know what the apostolic teaching is. But that's how, how it works in the early church. They shared together in the authoritative apostolic word of the apostle Paul, which is a, another way of saying they shared together in the gospel. Um, the great uh, uh, Australian New Testament scholar Donald Robinson uh, was fond of putting it this way. He said, The church didn't make the New Testament... The New Testament made the church. There's this kind of urban myth out there that the, you know, Christianity kind of accidentally became a religion and by about the year 300, we thought, well, if we're going to be a religion, we're going to need a holy book. And uh, so there was some council and they kind of hobbled together. The thing they called the New Testament, not, not true at any level. If, if the opposite is the case, it's not that the church creates the Bible. The church, it's the, the, the Bible creates the church. And that happens in the circumstances of mission. It's one of the things you can see here. So you imagine that you're, you know, you're a pagan in Colossae, just there kind of you know, worshipping idols and incurring the wrath of the living God for your ignoring of him. There you are in those circumstances. And then one day this guy called Epaphras comes through town and he's memorised some things that Jesus said and he's quoting some things that Paul says. And you listen to that and after he hires a lecture theatre and after you know a week or a month or a year, think, my goodness, he's right. I've been offending the living God. I've been worshipping idols. And it turns out God has sent his son to rescue me from his coming wrath. 
And so then you, at that point, you think, I've got to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got to leave behind these idols. I've got to join the other community that are there who are, have also submitted to the apostolic word and discovered that they were objects of wrath and now they put their faith in Jesus and received his salvation. You get together with that group. That's how the church is born. And then in that group, you're there and you're kind of hobbling it together and you think, okay, we heard a authoritative word from the delegate of Jesus, from the one that Jesus gave authority to bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. That's how we started. And did you hear? I think they've got a letter from him over in Corinth. Okay, let's do a really expensive exercise. Let's raise some funds and ask if they'll do a copy of that letter and we can send them a copy of our letter and we'll do swapsies because we need to know what the apostolic word is. We need to pour over that letter and there'll be some things we don't know. We don't know who Apollos is or who Cephas is and we can't quite work out what he means by uh, the unmarried virgin and who is that and so on. We, you know, the nature of reading other people's mail is that you're going to miss some things on the way through. Nevertheless, the letter makes its way across because it represents the authority of the apostle and his gospel that gave birth to the church. So you see in that process, there is no point at which the church creates a Bible. There's only ever a point at which the Bible creates the church. Now, just in case you missed it, notice what we've been doing this week? And in Bible study... And as we gather together in our churches, we're pouring over the New Testament, pouring over the word that gave birth to the church. And we come here and we do that together because that is what we share. That is what gave rise to the church. And then conversely, uh, that represents a, a natural and serious limit to our fellowship between the churches. So, so imagine if you're there in, uh, in Colossae and you're, you know, you're there pouring over the letters that you can bring together that have genuine apostolic authority uh, and memorising the stories of Jesus and so on. And then you hear that there's a, there's a letter up there in Ephesus and you say, hey, can we do this thing and do a swap? Because we really need to work out how to you know, do this, that and the other. We need to be under the apostolic word. And you write to them and they write back and say, hey, uh, we've kind of lost Paul's letter. We don't use that anymore. There's this new guy. It's amazing. He's like teaching us some new things. He's kind of gone beyond where Paul says. At that point, you're like, whoa. Whoa. First thing you want to do is write and implore them to come back under the apostolic gospel. And there's a certain point where you say, actually, we, we're, we're walking separately here. Because the, the thing, we, we, we are a, a body under authority. And when people walk out from under the same authority as, as us, we need to walk separately. Secondly, the churches share together in a ministry of prayer. They pray one for another. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it begins with a prayer. We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. Again, remember, this is Paul who has never met them but does pray for them. In one sense, he could say, not my circus, not my monkeys. But it's not what he says. That Even though he's not on the org chart, he's not institutionally part of the same thing, he prays for them the moment he hears about them. 
He can't stop praying for them. He prays that God will fill them with the knowledge of his will, that God will, God will extend them, that they'll be fruitful in the gospel. They pray for one another. You see that right through the book, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. He's contending in prayer for them. Epaphras, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, he's always wrestling in prayer for them. And 4, verse, uh, verse 3 and 4, Paul asks for their prayers. He says, let's share this together. I'm praying for you. Can you please pray for me in the work that we're doing. The relationship between the churches is that we submit to and share under the same apostolic word. We pray one for another. And thirdly, from the book of Colossians, we share together in the giving and receiving of gospel workers. It takes a village, they say, to raise a child. And the truth is it it takes a large sway of gospel workers to plant a church. Just have a look at the church in Colossae. They learn the gospel through Epaphras. So first you've got Paul who teaches it to Epaphras, then Epaphras goes and teaches it to them. You've got Titus who brings the letter to them along with Onesimus, the former slave who's now one of the colleagues of Paul. They're told to welcome Mark and notice that they share Epaphras with Laodicea and Hierapolis. Uh, here, th- th- these, these guys are not embedded in a church, but they're across the church. Uh, to coin a phrase, they are para-church. They, they work alongside the churches. They bless multiple churches by bringing their ministry to those churches. The, the whole setup that Paul has developed in his apostolic team is para church, alongside the church for the encouragement of the church. That's what they're doing. And there are these greetings and mutual encouragements from Luke and Demas and Justice and the whole gang. It's a world of rich personal relationships of love and mutual recognition as resources are moved from one church to another, as people stand together uh, to distribute the resources that God has given one for the blessing of the whole. The kind of unity the kind of fellowship that that God calls us to in the book of Colossians is a unity of sharing together in the one gospel. It's a unity of praying one for another and it's a unity of being abundantly generous one to another in the resources that God has given to each of us. In Colossians and in the wider New Testament, I think there is little to no energy given to organisational unity. I can't see it. It's a big book. Maybe I've missed something, but I, I, I don't see a lot of energy in organisational unity. I don't see a lot of energy in, like, visible unity. It doesn't seem to be obvious that all being called the same thing or it, maybe that matters a bit, but it doesn't seem to be where the energy goes. In the New Testament, I see huge energy, huge time and resources given to prayer and to holding each other to the apostolic gospel and huge energy given to giving and receiving resources between each other. Uh, Our church is Providence Church uh, over there in Perth in Western Australia. Uh, Our church was born out of the outrageous... uh, And in hindsight, slightly unhinged decision of St. Matthew's to send two bunches of people to form Providence Church. 
2009, a missional community kind of model, meeting in house churches and so on. And then in 2014, sending like 150 or more people from more or less a whole congregation off to Providence and so on. Um, St. Matthew's Anglican Church, uh, it took a while to recover. In fact, I think we've learned some things that made us think we probably wouldn't do it exactly like that next time. But, but the spirit was absolutely right. That just this outrageous generosity that was given to, uh, to, to planting that church. We're now kind of, I guess, like a medium-sized church and we're, we're really determined to pay that forward. Because we are aware and we never want to forget that we are what we are because of the outrageous generosity of the church that planted us and not just the church that planted us. Our church, if we can just speak among friends and what's said on the Central Coast stays on the Central Coast, we've just taken resources from Hunter Bible Church and from EV, Scots Presbyterian, we've gone from Reach, we are indebted to more college and Trinity College and the FIEC and the MTS movement. It is embarrassing to... To, to look back and just to think of the resources that have been poured into us and resources poured into us from people and churches and organisations that as far as I can see aren't getting a kickback. They're not like, they're honestly, they're paying it forward. They're making sure that, the, that a church has the best chance it has to flourish in a city that they don't live in, in a, amongst people that they've never met. And it's hard not to get a little bit emotional about that every now and then. The, the, the extraordinary kindness that people have shown to us and, and the, the test that that is of whether you're really in it for the kingdom or not. And I can testify to all those organisations and all those people that the stuff that they've poured in and the stuff that you don't know they've poured in and the stuff that you'll never know this side of glory that they've poured into us. I don't know yet whether our church is a net uh, taker from the grid or a net contributor, but, but I'm determined we become a net contributor, that, that we be a church that creates a surplus beyond itself because we have been so blessed and benefited by churches and organisations that have had that vision. I think that is the heart of the unity of the relationships that God means us to have churches one to another. Uh, finally, and as we go home to our individual churches, the body of Christ back home, what should we be doing there? The book of Colossians, I think, is saying this, that the unity of the church as the body of Christ is not something to be strived for, but something to be lived out. That is, the book of Colossians doesn't say you could be the body of Christ if you beefed up X, Y, or Z. It says you are the body of Christ. The, the, the unity of Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, is a thing that is already true of our churches. 
It's something that Jesus did, not something that we did. It's something that God has already achieved in us. We are the body of Christ. We have been buried and raised with Christ. We are God's holy people. We are dearly loved. The book of Colossians is not a handbook for what our churches could be if we tried harder. The book of Colossians is a description of what God has already made us and an invitation to live that out. You see that, for example, in chapter 3, verse 1. Notice the logic. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Not if, but since. Because you've been raised with Christ, set your heart where you are. Why set your heart there? Answer, because you've been raised with Christ. That's how it pitches to us our life in Christ. It's a true thing of us that we should set our hearts on. Or when the, when the book instructs us ethically, you know, how are we supposed to live as Christians in Christian community? Chapter 3, verse 9 says, don't lie to each other. Worth pausing there for a moment. Every, every command has a backstory. Every, every command names a possibility, right? Uh, I was in, a, in another country once and I was intrigued as I got onto the lift up to the apartment that I was staying. There was a little sign that says, please do not urinate in the lift. <laughs> Think that, there's a backstory. There. <laughs> Paul, says, Paul says to a Christian community, don't lie to each other. Question, what kind of community do you need to say that to? <laughs> to a community that it's entirely possible that, that we lie to one another, that we're not always speaking the truth, that we pull our punches, that we say things that are flat out false, that we distort the truth, that we don't say things that we should have said, that we say things that we shouldn't have said. That's the community that Paul thinks that you're a part of and I'm a part of a community where it's entirely possible and predictable that we'll lie to each other. And so Paul says, don't lie to each other, but notice why. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Hey, guys, don't be or build communities where we lie to each other. Don't do that. Do you know why? Because you are the image of God. You are being built uh, into that new Adam, that last man, Christ as the head, us as the body. Because of what God has made us in Christ, don't lie. Or verse 12, uh, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why would you put on those clothes? Because, verse 12, we are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. The clothes of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, they, they suit you. They're your colours. They, they work for you because you are holy. You are dearly loved. You are God's chosen people. I think like lots of people in this room, I've had a fair bit to do with weddings uh, over the years. My kind of back of the envelope thing, it would be over 200, uh, I think, weddings that I've been involved in uh, in ministry. So I think I can say with some authority, I've made a general pattern recognition observation that there is more emphasis on the bride than the groom. 
Uh, just in terms of like the, 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 the labour of the day, you know, the groom kind of rolls out of bed at, you know, 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock and uh, down at the golf club and they might floss and they'll kind of, little bit of a little bit of combing of the hair, whereas the bride is up at 4am. There's this whole entourage of people who spend the better part of the day making sure she just looks absolutely stunning. They pour all this time and effort into her, into her. And so the whole drama of the wedding day is that, you know, the, 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 the husband's down there and he just kind of looks like the security detail, just with a <laughs> kind of a, maybe a rented, you know, rented suit and so on. And then you kind of, he's down there and, and so I may be fiddling with the chairs and stuff. And then the bride walks in and we all kind of stand up. And, and if he's been uh, well instructed in the pre-marriage counselling, he looks and goes, wow. And then <laughs> cries the head. Huge effort goes into the bride so that the husband looks at the bride and says, wow, she is beautiful. Listen to me as I read Ephesians 5 and notice here who takes responsibility for the beauty of the bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's wild. Christ takes responsibility for the beauty of the bride, his church. Or if I can put it this way, Christ doesn't find us holy and say, wow, he makes us holy. His word is what washes us and makes us beautiful. And as we come together in Christian communities, what are we doing as we bring the word to each other in small groups and on Sundays and as we sing it and pray it and teach it and read it and memorize it and catechize ourselves into it? We are preparing the bride for the day she meets her groom. And as we do that, we live in the sure knowledge that we will be presented perfect to Christ on the last day. And so in the meantime, we have the courage and the determination to live the lives that God has called us to, to clothe ourselves with kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13, to bear with one another and forgive one another. And if anyone has a grievance against someone, forgive and the, as the Lord has forgiven you. Uh, if you want to get into a life of forgiveness, church is a target-rich environment. One of the things we can promise to anyone in church is that you will have ample opportunities to forgive and be forgiven. How good is that? We should put that in our membership courses. That, that's not a bug, that's a feature. That's, that's why God's got us together. So that we can learn to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. And so we come together horizontally to let the message of Christ, verse 16, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. You know, Bonhoeffer says, uh, Christ puts the word of encouragement on my brother's lips, on my sister's lips. For some reason, God brings us together so that I, I can't hear it from myself. I need to hear it from you. 
I need, I need to hear you sing. I need to hear you say to me, hey, God loves you, holy and dearly love, stop lying. God, God loves you, walk in the fullness of, of Christ. We, we're brought together to do that. We, we do that horizontally and vertically. We sing with gratitude in our hearts to God. Uh, one of the decisions I've made uh, in this second half of life uh, is to be a little less British about how I sing in church. Because I, think, I don't think I'm going to be able to keep going with Jesus uh, just on duty, just on knowledge. Uh, honestly, I think the gospel, I, think it's, I, I find it more persuasive, more true, more explanatory power. I think our chief rival, you know, secularism, super lame, super thin, like intellectually incoherent. Like I just so, I just think, look at those two and that, but... but but I need to not just know it, but to love it and to be thrilled with it and to be delighted in it. And so, you know, for the next 30, 40, 50 years, I'm just going for it on Sundays. This is my opportunity to sing and be sung to, uh, to be captured by the beauty of the Lord. We're going to stand up and sing together. There is one gospel. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity now as the band comes up to uh, bless one another as we sing to God about the gospel uh, that has given birth to the church, the gospel which holds us account to the things of God and to build one another up in the love of the gospel. Well, that was the last of Rory's talks. Uh, we will have some more resources from the Reach Australia conference coming up soon, so keep an eye out for that. But if you've got any requests, anything you'd like to know, please email us, resources at reachaustralia.com.au. Chat soon. This podcast is part of the Reach Australia Resource Library. It's your toolbox of biblical and practical wisdom from gospel workers. We want to equip you to reach more people for Christ. It started as a Dropbox and now contains over 4,000 podcasts and ebooks, and it's free for anyone to use. It's all possible because someone like you was generous, and it only continues because God uses people like you. Will you give $20 today to keep sharing resources like this? Click the link in the show notes. We thank God for generous people like you.